ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Kabbalah and Coffee, where the coffee is strong and the Kabbalah, oh, the Kabbalah is stronger. That's how we roll here. This is the best way to start your week. Um, yes, I, I may be, as they call it, Nagebedavra, which means I may be, how do you translate that? <laughs> yes. No, I may be biased. That's a better word. It's uh, an English word at least. But nonetheless, uh, it's wonderful to see y'all here this morning and uh, to study together. So let us begin. We're going to continue our exploration of the inner workings of the soul. Inner workings of the soul. You guys ready? How? how I know not everyone was with us a few weeks ago, but those of, those of you that were here a few weeks ago, how ready are we just to continue like straightforward? Yeah? Last time we didn't do anything inside. But hopefully today, we're going to review? Okay. Alright, here's the landscape of the human being. You ready? Let's do this in like five minutes. We're going to recap in five minutes. If you ever wanted to know what you look like inside, I'm not talking about the x-ray or the full body scanner at the airport. I'm talking about spiritually. Like your spiritual exoskeleton. No, not exoskeleton, something else. What? Something. Your spiritual... Um, um, but, 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 your spiritual... CT. Even my computer may take a minute. Say it again. CTE, MRI, FMRI, whatever. FMRI is like the brain scan, isn't it? FMRI is the one where you're actually doing something and so you're recording what happens in the brain. Man, did, we, did I look at the coolest brain study the other day? We taught it in the JLI class. We'll schmooze about that after the class. Marty knows the brain study. Group, group pressure, right? Remember group pressure? Oh, yeah. Right, we spoke about that? All right. I know, right? Pressure, group pressure. Uh, Of course I remember the group pressure. Ah! All right. So here's the dealio. Here's the deal. We have, if we look inside the human being, what, what lurks underneath the hood? What lurks underneath the hood? So Kabbalah speaks of, I'm, I, we're going to, there's a lot more detail that is out there, but we're going to kind of condense it and compress it into th- on three dimensions. Dimension number one is the dimension of the garments of the soul. And again, we're moving from, just kind of recapping what we did, we're moving from the outside in. We have the garments of the soul. The garments of the soul are thought, speech, and action. Machshava, dibur, and maise. Three garments. Why are they called garments? Because these are three avenues, pathways, modalities of expressing what you're thinking, or sorry, what you know, and how you feel. Good morning, good morning. Let's, pa- let's make sure everybody's got a copy. Pass these down to Ronnie and Madeline. Thank you. And do you guys get a copy? You guys get it? Good morning, Pastor. Okay, great. <coughs> so we have the three garments of the soul. You can express yourself in thought. Thought expresses yourself to yourself. Because before you were thinking about it, maybe you didn't know that that's how you were feeling. Maybe you felt something, but you couldn't articulate it even to yourself. So thought is self-articulation. Speech is articulating to another. And action is actually implementing something in the world. Making a change. Doing something tangible. Expressing. 
So these we explain, there are different ways in which we, we express the soul. But beneath that, the question is, what are you actually expressing? So what are you expressing in thought? What are you, to yourself, what are you expressing in, in, in speech to the other? And what are you expressing in deed? So, Kabbalah explains that what are you expressing? You're expressing the soul. What is the soul? The soul is comprised of Seichel and Midot. What are these two, what are these two ideas? The soul is comprised of how you understand things and what you know and how you feel and what you feel. That's what the soul is. Who are you? You are what you know and how you know and what you feel and how you feel. That's who you are. That's the soul. Ten powers, three intellectual, seven emotional. So you are ideas, understanding, and you are feelings. You express those through, spot, through thought, speech, and action. So the example that we gave a few weeks ago, when we last met, was as follows. Somebody says something to you that's not nice, and you get, what, what was the example? You get offended. Before you start thinking about the fact that you got offended, you were already offended. You just didn't realize it yet. But you were already offended. How do I know you were offended? Because when you were thinking about the fact that you're offended, that's not where the offensiveness, that's not where the being offended began. That's not the genesis of being offended. You were already, right? It's not like I thought of it. Sometimes, well, you can think about it and then you come to the realization, wow, that was really offensive. Sometimes it's a product of mulling it over and thinking it over and kind of coming to a logical calculation. But even that is, is how you think and how you feel. But here's the deal. Here's, here's the, let's streamline the idea. Somebody says something to you, and there's a way that you hear it, a way that you understand it, and a way that you feel it. Before you're thinking about, how should I feel it? How should I understand it? There is an innate, inherent, intrinsic... There's a way that you process stuff. And everyone processes stuff differently. Some people are way more offensive, offend, not offensive, offendable, they get offended much quicker than other people. Other people, you can tell them, you know, you can tell them just anything you want and they'll be like, you know, whatever. It's like, it doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Some people, you say the slightest, you try to say a compliment, next thing you know, they're offended. It's like, that's a great tie. What do you? What the one I wore yesterday? What? Yeah, right, right. You're with me on this one, right? It's like, oh, uh, oh, only this one? It's like because everything that you're hearing, this is before you're conscious of it. You're not even aware of all this stuff. That's what we explained two weeks ago. This is all stuff that's happening under the hood, so to speak. There's when you're consciously processing, when you're thinking about something, 
when you're speaking about something, when you're doing something, that's already after the fact, that's already after you've already run, you've already, it's already run through your, your inner machine of your mind and your heart. You've already processed it. Somebody gets jealous. <coughs> they hear somebody's good fortune. Oh, you heard? Yankel, uh, Yankel got a raise. The first thing they hear, what do they hear? Not good for Yankel. What do they hear? Why not me? Why not me? Yankel gets a raise. What am I? Shop liver. It's like, who does Yankel think? Like, what's, what's with Yankel? Why, why, you know? Like, how does that make sense? Are you kidding me? I'm way more qualified than Yankel. If I could give a raise to myself or Yankel, it would totally be myself every day of the week. So that's, right? I mean, that's what we think. Huh? Except Shabbos. As Big Adalia Gumber once said. There's so many factors. So two weeks ago, we actually... So I'm about to get there. So, But before we get to, to the what's the cause of it, this is... I cannot imagine that this is actually Joanne. I don't have the sound on Joanne, but if you guys look at the picture, it look, oh, now it just switched. It's just Captain America. It had a picture of Captain America before. No, but like that was bizarre. Hopefully Joanne is on the other end. And John, we'll see. It's loading. Little, uh, little thing swirling. All right, we'll see. So here's the deal. <coughs> Getting back to the point. You already process things in a certain way. Before you start thinking consciously, how come it wasn't me? You already heard inside, how come it wasn't me? You with me? You felt it. You interpreted it. You already, when you hear the information, Yanko got the raise, you already, hey, you already... It, 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 you, the way you interpreted it inside is already, why him, not me? Then your conscious thought is articulating, is articulating that, that um, definition, if you will, to yourself. Because you feel, you feel the jealousy. And then you think, this doesn't make sense. And you have all of the rational arguments and you think it, you mull it over in your mind, but that's how you're articulating it to yourself. That's already, but that's already after the fact. It's already happened. Hey, Joanne. No, 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 don't be silly. Here, let's, uh, let's show everybody. Say hi to Joanne. Live from Texas. By the way, Texas is, is an hour earlier. And today, it's two hours earlier. So, like, we're, we're all... This is very impressive, I'm just saying. Because, I don't know if you know this, but this is all photoshopped. Everyone's still in their beds. I mean, we're not even here. <laughs> huh? You are right on time. Huh? Sorry? All right, cool. Awesome. Well... <laughs> That's a close call. <laughs> All right, hey, let's keep this PG. Now, um, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> That's what a weekend in New York with no sleep, with teenagers, <laughs> and um, and out and coming back, having already lost my voice, and then getting hit with the beautiful trees and pollen. That's uh, that's what that will do. But anyway, getting back to the point. You, this is so important to, to remember or to know. 
You've already processed the information. Hey, John. You've already processed the information before you're thinking about it. It's not that you become jealous. Once you're thinking, you're thinking that you are jealous already because you were already jealous. Some people can hear about the good fortune of somebody else and actually, shockingly, be happy for them. It's like, what a novel concept, right? They're like, wow, I'm so happy that Yankel uh, got a raise. I'm so happy. Without any... Without any... um, So what I'm looking for? Hesitation? No, 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 not even hesitation. Without any, like... No, 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 no. Any, no, I'm looking for like a, a, a double meaning without any, give me something that, that like implies like a double meaning. Without any, not, no, like not a, not a, um, uh, not ulterior motive, but without any hidden agenda, without any, no, what I mean is like you can say, oh, I'm so happy for him. Why? Because really, like, have you ever been into his house and say, I mean, he really could use the money. So like you're already, like you justify because like, you know what I mean? Genuine, absolutely genuine. You can truly be genuinely happy and not like throw a dig in there at the same time. Like, I'm so happy. Oh, he's been such a nebuch all of his life. means like, you know, whatever, loser. He's such a loser all of his life. I'm so happy that he finally got something. So you dig him as you're happy for him. You're not really happy for him. That's just another form of jealousy. But to assuage your jealousy, you, you give him a dig and you're like, oh, I'm happy for him. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. But that's, that's still the modality of I've already, I've already done some twisting and you know, inner contortions with it. Whereas it's possible for a person, another person, to be truly and genuinely happy for somebody else's good fortune. I'm happy. Without any hidden agendas, without any double meanings, without any digs or any... Like I'm, to- I'm, I'm actually really happy for that guy. Yeah, her. without... May they always have success and not have... Uh, and no one should look at them with a negative eye. That's what an eye her is, by the way. The ayin hara, the evil eye is that we look at somebody's good fortune and we say, we, we almost wish that they didn't have it because we don't have it. And Kabbalah and Judaism says that we have the power to negatively affect somebody by thinking that. What did you call them? Ayin hara. You ever hear Ken ayin hara? That means in Yiddish, Ken ayin hara. means there should not... We, we wish that, we wish somebody who has something good happen to them May no one cast the evil eye on you. You see somebody with their kids, for example, you say, Wow, you have beautiful kids, canine horror. May no one else look at your kids and say, God forbid, you know, once, whatever, etc. Say it? Canine horror. Oh, I know, it's Kinahara. Kinahara, yeah. Well, that's just because we. No, that's because people say it fast. Yeah. Those fast, those fast Yiddish speakers. Can I not? Maybe you would say nisht, and maybe not, but can also. In Hebrew, it's without. Bli, yeah, bli ayin hara. Yeah, you would say bli ayin hara. Without, without the evil eye. Okay, no. No. Oh, no, the cane that's. No, that's in Hebrew. No, in Yiddish, it means no. Sorry. You know what my kids, we were doing, right, one second. We were on the subway, and my kids were throwing knock knock jokes. The best one I heard was. Knock, knock. Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow who? No, 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 no. That's, that's it. Because you just interrupt the other person. No, whatever. Okay, go. I don't know. That's what the kids said on the subway. Go. <laughs> go for it. A little aside, to me, the most genuine form of happiness is when 
my grandchildren and my children. So to me, that's that's an example. Right, where you can find that in your experience. Exactly. So we all know, oh, that's a, and that's a great example. And, and, and I think what Marty is bringing up is really a, a, another layer to this, which is that it's not all or nothing. It's not like we either always interpret other people's good fortune as being, as we're, and we're jealous of it or, or, or not. I think something depends, depends well, who they are. So, hopefully. By the way, many, many people are, are jealous of family. And that's, that's one of the forces that really drives families apart, oftentimes, where you have maybe siblings or whatever, or even, God forbid, parents and children, where one is jealous of the other's success or resentful. It's like, how did you get there? How come I'm not there? And that's the cause. I mean, look, we, we live in a real world. We don't have to pretend that this stuff doesn't happen. Stuff happens all the time. Because we're human beings and we have flaws, and, and that's the way God made us. And, and, and our, our job is to work on that. But here's the point of all of this. The point is, there is a layer on the outside, where you're processing either in action, in speech, or even in thought, you're processing what already has occurred inside, in your head or in your heart. In other words, you've already understood it a certain way, you've already heard it a certain way, you've already felt it a certain way. You hear the news, Yanko got a raise. The way you understand, how you think and what you think about that, how you feel and what you feel about that, is really def- the really defines who you are. And then there's the way, and then there's based on all of that what you're thinking now, how you articulate that to yourself. Wow, I am jealous. That already happened. You're now articulating that to yourself that I'm jealous. So now you're being, you're becoming more self-aware. Then you can articulate that to somebody else by saying, "Oh, that ankle, he's a good for nothing." And then you do something like sabotage his career. This is like a terrible example, but. <laughs> And hopefully not a real life example. But these are different ways in which you can express in thought, speech, and action that which you know and feel. So here's the point. There's still something that's deeper than all of this. And this is what we didn't get to last time. This is what we're going to get to today. And hopefully we're going to expand it on multiple levels. There's something deeper than all of this. We might call this in psychological terms thus far the conscious and the subconscious. The conscious is what you're aware of consciously, your thought, your speech, and your action. You're aware of what you're thinking, what you're saying, and what you're doing. You're aware of, 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 of how you're living, basically. But what drives that? Why are you thinking negative thoughts? Oh, there's a whole process that, go, that happens under the hood. So that's the subconscious. That we're not always aware. We may be aware that we're thinking unhealthy thoughts, negative thoughts, jealous thoughts, angry thoughts... Offended thoughts. But why? Where's that coming from? We know it's coming from somewhere else. It's not that here here it's found and here it always was. It's not like it begins in speech. Like I I wasn't feeling anything and suddenly when I spoke, I got offended. Happened under the hood. But we don't always know... We can't always really understand why I'm, I'm, I'm offended. Why do I always get offended? Why do I always feel hurt? Why do I always feel jealous? Why, why, why? The other guy doesn't feel like that. Why do I feel like that? These are things that happen under the hood. We're not even aware sometimes, you know, when, when people say something hurtful. Why did you say something hurtful? Because I was angry. Why were you angry? We usually don't think really, like, how many steps back do we, do we usually think about this stuff? 
But if we really thought about this stuff, we would realize that there's a whole ecosystem that happens under the hood, which is in our souls. The way Kabbalah explains it. It's our souls, it's our seichel amidot, it's the way we're thinking, the way we're feeling inside. Not thinking. The way we understand things, the way we feel things inside, before we process it in conscious thought. There's a whole ecosystem of the subconscious that drives the expression. So when somebody says something angry and hurtful, it's not happening in the mouth. It already happened. Last time we explored, well, why, why, is it, why, why does it happen like that and what causes it to happen like that? We explained that there are three primary factors. As God said to Abraham, Lech Lecha, leave your land, your birthplace, and your father's house. These are the three factors of the subconscious that, that comprise the human being and the soul. So what are they? Your land is your society, your culture. I'll tell you this. I don't want to make a generalization, but whenever somebody says that, what are they doing? What are they about to do? Hey, bro. Good to see you. Grab one of these copies and you'll be good to go. <laughs> Not that you may need it today, but it's another story. All right. So, <coughs> is that again? Yeah. yeah. Right, it's all you. It's all you. A hundred percent. It's not so much what the other person has. A hundred percent, right. And oh, absolutely. So whether you act and say it or do it, if you're thinking and feeling it, you're the, you know, they say it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. A hundred percent. It's uh, and, and the biggest proof is that the same person can tell the, uh, the same guy can, can tell your neighbor nice tie and tell you nice tie but you're going to be all like defensive, like, oh, well, what do you mean by that? What's, what's the hidden agenda? Like, what's the message? Like, my tie yesterday wasn't nice. Like, what's... And the other guy will be like, well, thank you. I'm glad you like it. And, and like, we'll not have any... Oh, a loaded comment. That's what I was looking for. Loaded. Loaded with, like, loaded with other meaning. Like, they won't look at it at all like, as, as a loaded comment. It'll be a very pure compliment. Thank you very much. And they'll, they'll walk away actually happy. So, yeah, it's totally not them. It's, it's, it's us. It's how we... It has to do with our soul makeup. And there are three primary factors, yeah. Is the unconscious mind the same place we go when we sleep? No, no, no. Our, our thoughts shut off. We're not, we're not in control typically of our thoughts. When we talk about machshava thought as one of the garments, that is the thought that we're actively processing. Which we have the ability, we explained two weeks ago, we have the ability to redirect our thoughts. One of the, one of the um, implications... Right, no, 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 we, 100% we think, but that's called more in, in, in mystical terminology, the uh, demion. It's more like the imagination. It's not machshava, it's not thought, it's imagination. Uh, so there's a, the sleep is a, is, a, is, a, is a huge topic. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so let's hold that for a moment. But just the, the simple answer is it's different. It draws on the same subconsciousness, but it's what, it, what it really is is the subconsciousness, is the subconscious not ordered. See, machshava thought orders puts an order to thought, but to, to what we're to what we know, what we feel, and it comes out in, in the dreams. So it says, what you think about during the day, what you feel during the day, is what you dream about at night, to a certain extent. So it's 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 more of like a, a pure expression of what's inside, unfiltered, and that's why like the impossible can happen in a dream, etc. Yeah, 
Okay, so so we can get. Was it is it about dreams? Yeah, well, it's all of it. It's just. So let's 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 hold up on dreams for a second. Let's get back here. So, what are the three primary factors that drive that determine how how we interpret stuff under the hood? Like not when you're th- you think about it, it's too late. You're speaking it's too late. You're doing it's too late. What under the hood? So we explain this too. So you have the culture, society. I, I don't want to get too I don't, too much of a generalization, but you know, a New Yorker, you tell them, you know, you tell them that's not a nice tie. They'll they'll tell you where to go. Now maybe they're offended inside, but certain cultures produce a more a tougher way of being. That's just the way it is. A thicker skin, a tougher way of being. Or certain cultures produce people that are very self-assured. Very strong and self-assured. Certain cultures produce people produce people that are very not, not self-confident at all. Very self-unassured. By the way, the question is, what, what are we producing here in the U.S.? Are we producing kids with self-esteem or kids without self-esteem? Well, there was a whole movement to, to, to really improve self-esteem for the last few decades. The question is, has that worked? I would say it hasn't worked because the way we try to teach self-esteem is using all the wrong, all the wrong methods. It's like self-esteem based on others' approval, which is not really self-esteem. It's really other people's esteem. But that's another, that's another topic. It's another, uh, it's another sermon. But getting back to this point. So one, one factor that determines how you're going to hear what the other person is saying as Marnie said, it's all about you, how you're hearing what they're saying, is the land that, you're, that, you, that you grew up in, the, the culture, the society. Another factor is your birthplace, which is your specific mixture and blend of soul powers. What does that mean? Everyone has a different, everyone has a different um, blend of the ten soul powers, of the three intellectual and seven emotional soul powers. Some people are naturally more chesed, more kind. The kinder, the kinder people are people that are more likely to look favorably on another. And to take them, shh, and to take what they're saying, uh, in other words, to, to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's what a chesed personality does. Chesed is like, yeah, the other person may, may say something not nice, but you know what? I'm sure they meant something good. Chesed is like extending something positive. Gvura is very judgmental. Gvura is a different type of personality. Gvura is, even if you say something good, what's your agenda? What do you, what, what do you mean by that? Why did you say that? How should I judge you? I don't know if I like that. It's very judging. Gvura means severity. Gvura means, is also synonymous with din. Din is like judgment. Din is like severe and, and tense and very, very uptight. So Gvura will look at something happening and Gvura will be very harsh. So here you have an example. Here you have an example of two people that are going to hear the same thing and judge it two different ways. The chesed personality is going to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. The gavur personality is going to judge the other person, be very judgmental and harsh, and look at the other person sternly. So here's the question. Here's the question. What's the truth? Are they, should I be offended? Or should I view them harshly? Or should I view them with, with love? What's the answer? It's going to depend. Depend if you're a chesed personality or a gavur personality. Depending on who you are. So there's one factor that's based on your society. What does your society say about being offended? 
Does, does society teach that you should be offended easily or not be easily offended? But then there's another issue. The issue is, what's your, persona- what, what's your particular soul personality? What's your soul print? How much chesed do you have? How much kvur do you have? You with me so far? The third influence is our parents' home. Beit Avicha. Parents' home. Birthplace is your inborn, your inborn soul powers. In other words, the the everyone has all ten soul powers, but not everyone is is equilibrium fifty percent. You ever see like an equalizer in music? It's like, do you want heavier bass, like the low tones, louder? Do you want he- heavier, uh, higher? Tra- it's like there'll be a curve over there. So everyone has everyone has the capacity of chesed and the capacity of gvura. But guess what? People are very different. It's not like everyone's at an equilibrium fifty percent, like across the board. Somebody is like, wh- like, whoa, they're like all chesed, or though they're all gvura, that's moladcha, that's the middle, that's the second category, that's birthplace. Birthplace, i.e., it's not like geography, it's not your land. Your land is society. Birthplace is, it works in the Hebrew better than the English. Moladcha means how you're born, in other words, the, your natural, inherent, intrinsic, as opposed to the other two, which are nurture. The second one is nature. Nature, nurture. The first one is your society. That's nurture. You didn't have to be born in that society. If you would have been raised in a different society, if you would have been raised in uh, you know a small, quiet, you know mid midwestern town, farm you know land town whatever, so then you might be ha- you might have a different personality when you emerged you know at eighteen than if you were born in in, in middle of the inner middle you know in Brooklyn or in uh, or in Jerusalem. You just you may have just a, a, a very different personality, based on where you're born. That's not nature, that's nurture. Number two is, is nature. Number two is moladecha, is, is, is your birthplace. In other words, the actual space, the, the, the definition of your birth, of your reality. <coughs> and that we don't really have control. Okay, forget about control. We're, we'll talk about change in a moment. These are just realities so far. The third dimension, the third dimension is your your parents' home. And that is the influence, the education that you got from your parents, from your educators. In other words, not a societal influence that's a little bit disconnected, it's a little bit removed, a little bit out there, but it's like the immediate influence that you had in your life. The education, the value system that you were given, that you were taught, um, the rules that you had in your home growing up, or the lack of rules, etc. All of that stuff has also a profound impact on you and how you're going to interpret things. So all of this is the soul that then lends itself and extends into your levushim, your garments of the soul. In other words, it expresses itself in your thought, speech, and action. But what expresses itself? Your subconscious, the way you, the way you understand and the way you feel about things. Okay. But deeper than all of this lies what Kabbalah refers to as the etzem hanefesh, which means the essence of the soul. What is the essence? What is the soul essence? The soul essence is not a composite of multiple things. Until now, we've been speaking about the soul in terms of that which can be influenced by outside factors. If you were born in Iowa or in New York, that's going to have an impact on you. That can only have an impact on a part of you that is able to be impacted. But that cannot have an impact on the part of you that is absolutely pure and essential. In other words, there's a part of you that is impressionable. There's a part of you that's not impressionable at all. 
There's a part of you that is vulnerable. There's a part of you that is unbreakable. There's a part of you that is vincible. I don't know if that's a word. It's the opposite of, and there's a part of you that's invincible. There's got to be, vincible has got to be something. If there's invincible, it's got to be vincible. It sounds Yiddish. Are you vincible? It sounds like... Vince. Vince, new, vincible. Okay. All of what we've spoken about until now, even as the soul has different ways that it understands and different ways that it feels and, you know, different from one person to the next, all of that represents something that is a composite of different things. How much chesed do you have? How much kvur do you have? What's the ratio of, of, of love versus severity, of strictness, of kindness, of compassion, of, of wisdom, of understanding? All of that is a soul composite. Ten different powers that are working together. That's not a pure essence. Essence, by definition, is not a composite. At least by Kabbalah's definition, what is essential is absolute, and it's pure, and it's one, and it's whole, and it's not a composite, and it can't be impression, it, can't, it's, it's not, it cannot be impressed upon, in other words, it cannot be changed, it cannot be modified, it can't be destroyed, it can't be created. It's absolutely essential. What is it when we talk about the soul? What is absolutely essential? We talk about the godly soul. What is essential to the godly soul? It's, it's connection to God. It's love for God. <clears throat> And when, the ta- when we talk about the essence of the soul in general, what it means is it's connection to life and it's connection to those whom one is essentially connected to. I know that sounds like a circular type of explanation, the last part, but let me explain. What is the essence of the soul? The essence of the soul is in love with God. Why is it in love with God? Not because I love God. That's... The, that's the outer dimensions, which we call before the, the subconscious of the soul. Okay, again, time out. Three levels. There's the consciousness of the soul, the subconscious of the soul, and then there's the essence of the soul. The essence of the soul can get in love with God by thinking about things that will enhance the love. So I meditate on the things that God does for me or the things that somebody else does for me, and I may get more love, I may feel more love, more excitement. I, that can change how I feel inside. That can change. But the inside, the essence of my soul cannot change. It's not like it's changing or being enhanced by what I'm thinking about. It's absolutely essential. So why does my soul essentially love God? Not because it understands something about God. Not because I love God. But because my soul is a part of God. So it loves God no differently than one loves themselves. You don't need a reason to love yourself. If you need a reason to love yourself, that means you're not in touch with your essence. That means you're stuck somewhere else. You with me on that? If you need to explain to a person why they need to love themselves, what that means is that they're not in touch, they're not in touch with their own essence, which by nature is in love with themselves. Not in a, not in a narcissistic negative way, but in a healthy, self-affirming way. You're not in touch with yourself. You're living disconnected from that core essence. You're living in, an, in a more external place, even if it's a subconscious, but it's a more external place. And therefore, now you need to be convinced why you should love yourself. That's not a healthy. That's not healthy. So the point is that just like we naturally, in a healthy way, love ourselves, the soul naturally and in a healthy way loves God. Why? 
Not because of what God does for us. Not because of how awesome God is, or how cool God is, and how like big God is. That's all happening here. Or in the heart. On a soul level, on an essence soul level, the soul loves God. Why? Because it's one with God. So just like you love yourself naturally because that's who you are, well, you're not going to love yourself. That's who you are. Maybe love is the wrong term. It's a good term. You care for yourself. You love yourself. Why? Because that's you. The same thing is with God. The same thing is with your kids when you're in touch with this place. You love your kids and your grandkids because they're part of you, not selfishly. Not, the, not, not therefore I hover over them. Maybe you do also, but that's, that's not from that place necessarily. But I love them intrinsically, inherently, essentially because they're a part of me. We've talked about this before. What we've talked about before is if this is true in marriage as well. And the truth is, this is also true in marriage. It can be true in marriage. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. How might it be true in marriage? Well, the Kabbalah teaches that marriage is really two halves of one soul reuniting. So it's not so much as you have one soul and another soul that are now joining together, which would imply two separate entities, which would imply that there's no essential bond, Marriage really is, is more precisely, according to Kabbalah at least, it's one soul, imagine like a, like a circular saw blade. And the soul comes down, and it gets split into, into two. No, does that sound too gory? I'm sorry. It says that it's, pain, it's painful for the soul to be separated. Right. So here we get to the question, like, so what happens, like, second marriage, third, like, how does that work with soulmates? It's a very complicated topic. Kabbalah says we may have multiple soulmates. How does that work? I don't know. Let's, uh, let's, so I, I know I'm, I'm opening up a very elaborate discussion, but just, I, I just want to address it because it, it, it does come up when we talk about these things. Like, are we only essentially connected with God, self, and kids? What about spouse? The answer is we could, could also be essentially connected with spouse based on this teaching that really soul mates are not one soul, one plus one equals two, but it's really more of like a half and a half is a one because really they were one soul. That's it. That's all I'm going to say on the matter. How it plays out, it's another, it's another conversation. How, how, right, how that works, again, in the details, it's a more elaborate discussion that we can, we'll reserve for a class on this topic, soulmates, and, okay. But getting back to the point. Why, what is the essence? It's not something that is born. It's not like my soul learned to love God. It's not like I need to learn to love myself. And a healthy, again, we're talking about a healthy situation. Now where somebody broke somebody and told them that they're good for nothing. God forbid. So that they created doubt. And they created a block by, for getting in touch with their inner core, which they still can get in touch with. We're talking about a healthy situation. Somebody that has true self-esteem. Somebody that has essential, natural, I love myself because, of course I love myself. I'm not going to love myself. That's who I am. Of course I love myself. Who, what's not to love? Do you know me? What's not to love? <laughs> no, but that's, that's still a composite. It's like, look at what I've done. That's where self-esteem got so messed up. 
because we made it about like what you're doing, and that's the whole opposite of of what true self-esteem really is. Yeah. It's about, it's not about what you've done or what have you done for me lately. It's the fact that you're born. Boom, you got value, essential value. Right? Being born is God saying you matter. Something like that. Okay. So that's true. So that's essential. So that's something that's a composite. Oh, I figured it out and it made sense because it's an essential love that you have for yourself. Essential love for God. Why? Because you're one. Essential love for your kids, for your spouse. For it's an essential love, not a composite love. So what's the difference? What's the difference? Difference is when it comes to change. When you try to change the garments, they can change back. You got offended. Every time you get offended, let's say once a day you get offended. Somebody offends you. Let's just say. We'll make it very consistent, make it an easy example. So for 30 years, you're being offended every single day. Until finally you say to yourself, I don't like being offended. I don't like feeling... Stop this again. Backtrack. You get offended, and every time you get offended, you think about how offended you are, but more importantly, you lash out and you say something hurtful to the other person. You tell yourself, well, they deserve it, they just offended me. But you say something negative. Until you realize, you come to the <coughs> conclusion, you don't want to say something negative. Because it's like, it's money instead. It's like, you're drinking poison and you're hoping the other one's going to die. It's like, it's not healthy for me. I would rather not... I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to take the high, high ground. <coughs> so the day, so now it's today. And that thing happens that offends you. Are you still offended? Yes. But what do you tell yourself? I'm not going to say anything. Mm, close my mouth. Because I have control over my garments. Garments, you can take them off, you can switch them out, do whatever you want with garments. It's not you. It doesn't require any plastic surgery, it's garments. Change, change your clothes, take them off altogether. So I can change what I say, I can say something loving instead of something negative, or I can just not, not talk altogether, I can take it off, I can close my mouth. Eid l'daber ve'eid l'achshot, says King Solomon. Time to speak, time to be silent. I don't have to speak. So that works today. Tomorrow, I get offended again. So what do I do? Quiet. <coughs> How sustainable is this? I'm getting offended. I'm not saying anything. How sustainable? So what do I tell myself? <coughs> but I don't want to blow up. So I tell myself, you know what? Let me not get offended. Let me work on that. So I need to meditate now. I need to meditate. Why do I need to meditate? Because what I need to do is change the way I'm processing the information. <coughs> so I need to meditate on the fact that the other person loves me. They care about me. I'll be okay even though they said something. I need to, I need to, get, I need to have my head thinking different thoughts because the way I'm thinking, not thinking in thought, the way I'm understanding, the way I'm feeling, I'm already getting offended. So I have to change those inner patterns, the subconscious. I've got to go now under the hood. <coughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce new information. 
new information about the person, about the context, about not getting offended. I'll start thinking about, I don't know, uh, meadows and soft, soft grass and, and, and sunsets and sunrises. I'm going to try to mellow myself out. I'm going to try to go on some sort of change my diet, my eating habits. I don't know what I'll do. I'll try to change things so that I don't even get offended in the first place. Because getting offended and not saying anything is just too darn difficult. It's like, it's like it's, I have this flood that wants to come out and I'm trying to hold back my mouth and it's like pushing up against my lips and it's not going to work. It's going to eventually, it's going to come bursting out and then when it comes out, you know what I'm going to say? And I even held back myself for the last two weeks because of this and then it's really going to come out and then it's going to really explode even more than... So I tell myself, I got I to work inside. I got I to gotta go under the hood. I gotta think about different things. I gotta meditate, understand. I gotta change the way I, I, I understand and feel. So I can. So you introduce new information. You try to work on yourself from the inside. You may have some success, but here's the deal: change that occurs from that place is also not guaranteed. Why? Because the same way you can introduce new thoughts that are healthier, new ideas that are healthier, you can recall the old ideas that are unhealthy. The same way you can introduce new emotional patterns that are healthy, you can reintroduce the old emotional patterns that are unhealthy. And you know what? The same way you can introduce new healthy stuff, you can introduce new, not even the old unhealthy stuff, new unhealthy stuff. Nothing stopping the unhealthy stuff from coming in. Today you'll learn a healthy meditation, tomorrow you'll learn a terrible meditation. You know what I'm saying? What's the guarantee? I'll try really hard. Okay. Good luck. Let me know how it goes. There's no guarantee. That's the point. It may work. It may work for a year. It may work for five years. It may work forever. It's going to be very difficult. There's no guarantee that it's going to work consistently. Not only when we change the garments, when we create change in the garments, but even when we create change under the hood, what's the guarantee that's going to work? What if I don't want? What if I want to stop meditating? I don't. I don't want to keep on introducing new ideas. I want to revert back to the unhealthy way that I was thinking. There you go. So I tell myself, you know what, this year I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to eat healthy. Because I understand that this is a very important value. Halfway through the year I tell myself, but you know what, I also have another value. I like, I like food that, that, that's not healthy. There's no guarantee that that new way of thinking is going to be sustained. What's guaranteeing it? You with me so far? So where does real change happen? Where does genuine, lasting change come from? Only from one place, from the essence. <coughs> the ironic thing is, when it's coming from the essence, it's not actually a change. It's, already it's who you are. But uh, if you think about like higher values, I mean, doesn't that shift things? Like... If you think about higher values, you can tomorrow you can think about lower values. If you're still in here or in here. If you can learn it, you can forget it. If you can learn it, you can learn something else that can counteract it. If it's all about learning and gain, if it's a composite experience, you can put something good in there. You can put something not good in there. It's almost like you're creating a salad. You're putting ingredients in. You can put a hundred percent. But what you're susceptible to, but what now? What what it's based on is you constantly making the choice to put in the healthy ingredients. Imagine you're making a salad. So you tell yourself instead of putting in the fatty oil, what I'll put in the low-fat oil. Okay? Maybe that's an action, but work with me on this. Let's, let's go beyond, inside the hood. 
It's only going to work as long as you keep on putting that stuff in. But tomorrow you can put in something else. You can put in... You made a decision to... You made a decision, but if you make the decision here, <coughs> you're only as strong as this is. And this we know is not so strong. You know, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. You can think of something else. You can convince yourself that, you know what, I'll slip a little bit, I'll do this, I'll do that. In other words, it's not... You're not going to... It's not... There's nothing that's guaranteeing sustainability. Nothing that's guaranteeing sustainability. <coughs> you know, when you're under the analogy, when you think about something, it's like you're driving your car and the amber check engine light comes on and it scares you and it annoys you so you can take over so you don't have to see it. Exactly. You know, and then all of a sudden you're knocking in your car, you know, and so that, that also annoys you, so you turn the radio up. <laughs> but, you know, but eventually you got to address the problem. Right. So if you're angry and upset, and it's not somebody else, then maybe there's a message there that rather than try to, you know, numb out that feeling and that irritation, it's like redirect it. Maybe that energy has a positive thing on it, and it's just, and it's just like to, uh, if you always look it's all for the good, then even when it feels terrible, and it's not working, then maybe, at, and I don't know if this is where you're going with this, but that's what it seems like. Because eventually you've got to go to the mechanic and, and figure out how to fix it. The question is, where do you go? And this, this, is the, this is the key question. And what I'm trying to posit is that you can't, if you go just under the hood, you're still not going to affect lasting change. You're st- still not going to have a guaranteed effect. As you tell yourself, you know what, I'm going to make a fundamental change. Instead of putting into my head poisonous thoughts, like negative thought patterns, I'm going to think and meditate on very healthy, positive ideas. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to change the way I feel. I'm going to kumbaya. I'm going to like, I don't know, what's, what's very relaxing. Whatever it is. Let's say I'm, I'm too, like I get too, too angry, too volatile. So I'm going to like totally change. I'm going to change my diet. I'll change my way of, of I'll change the information that I have in front of my head. Like I, I'm going to change everything about myself. But again, so the change, it'll be good as long as that change is there. But there's nothing guaranteeing that it's going to be long term because just like you can put yourself in a healthy situation, you can revert back to the unhealthy situation and you can, or you can put unhealthy influences in your mind and in your heart. You with me? Yes? A little bit? Good. So what's the point? Only change, the true change happens when you go beyond the subconscious and you go to the essence. It's from the essence that true change occurs. And on that level, it's not actually change. It's affirming, it's really getting in touch with who you really are. <coughs> Which means, like this. If I decide to spend more time with my kid, with my kids, I say, you know what, I'm going to spend more time with my kids. Not, it's not, okay. So three, three dimensions of this. One is, I don't want to spend time with my kids. I'd rather do something else, but I'm going to force myself to spend time with my kids. That's, not going to, that's, that's hard to sustain. Second dimension is, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to think about how great my kids are. And that's going to encourage me and excite me to spend more time with them. But tomorrow I might think about how great my job is. And how great money is, and how great uh, you know other distractions are, and the next thing you know, that's uh, kids again fall fall to the wayside. What's the only guarantee? 
The only guarantee of change from the status quo, which is me not spending enough time with the kids, in this example, is the only change that's possible is when you go to a deeper place within, a deeper place within where your kids are part of your essence. And when you're in touch with that reality, when you're in touch with that reality, <coughs> then it's not like I need to meditate on how great they are or how important they are or whatever. It's something that's absolutely essential and internal. The example that we gave for, for this in, in, the, in past classes is the example when somebody's facing their own mortality. Somebody's, God forbid, somebody's told that they have only X amount of time to live. And suddenly they, they reprioritize their life. Why do they reprioritize their life? It's not because suddenly those priorities are... It's not like suddenly these things are important. It's suddenly I'm in touch with those things that are essentially important. Which is love of self, love of family, love of God. Taking care of myself. So if the doctor says, you got to cut that out of your diet or else you're dead in six months. So self-preservation says, I'm going to do it. Because it's essential. It's no longer a logical thing where I say, well, I would like to eat healthy, but then the counter, the counteraction, the, the counteracting thought is, yeah, but that thing tastes good. It's no longer a question of what's logical, what I understand. It's essential. You get in touch with your own essential will to live, and you know that this is standing against, in, 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 in conflict with life. So there's no question which I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose to affirm life because you're living from that place. You're going to choose to affirm family. Because that's essential. It's not a choice that you're making. I said choose. It's not really a choice though. When you get in touch with the essence, the choice makes itself. There's only one choice. There's only one essence. And the same thing is true with God. It's, I'm, not be, I'm not living with God because I'm choosing, wow, it makes sense. I feel inspired today. I'm choosing to live with God because I have no other choice. Because that's who I am. I'm, I'm a piece of God. My soul is a part of God. So what, what, what other choice is there? But it's only when I'm in touch with the essence that I can realize this. When I'm in touch with the essence, is it too, is it too vague? A little bit? Okay. I think that, that one of the places we might get, one of the challenges could be that the act of being in touch with is a cognitive act. So think right. That, and we're trying to separate from that. Correct. So, the more right, so when you appreciate the fact that you have, you know, that you have value, that your family is part of it, etc., that God is important, that's still you can have a counteracting thought. Right, but, but I'm saying, to, but even I'm with the you. act of becoming, Be getting in touch with is not is not up here, right? That's not it's not something up here. It's actually a shift of being. It's actually living from that space. The question is, how do we get there? And we've talked about this many times, either through external challenges or through internally pushing yourself, squeezing yourself to the point where you live from a deeper place. Well, you talk about the doctor saying that. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't happen every day. Correct. And I'll tell you something else. And I'll tell you something else. I, what, what I... So the question is without that. No, we've, we've, and we've discussed this. There's ways to get, to get there to, to squeeze ourselves. <coughs> is to... We talked about the power of prayer in one of the classes, the power of prayer and, and, and getting oneself, shifting oneself... There's a, you know, there are people, we've said, we've said before that there are people that hear the news from the doctor and don't change a thing. And there are people that change something because of that news 
and then revert back. So, so what happened? So here's, here's what I would like to posit. person that hears the news, but doesn't change anything, is still living outside of the essence. They're still not living from their essence. They're still living from the place of rationalization. And so I'm going to rationalize, you know what, okay, I may have this amount of time, but I'd rather enjoy it than whatever. In other words, it's still like a rational... You can rationalize... So in other words, if you're not in touch with the essence, when I say in touch with, I don't mean in touch with here, I mean actually in that, living from that place. If you're not living from that place, so then you can't say, so look, it's not, it didn't change because you're not, li- <coughs> you're not living from that place. When you're living from that place, something shifts. If something doesn't shift, it means simply you're not living from that place. So it actually can't be used as a, as a proof that living from that place doesn't create change. All it proves is the person is not living from that place. There's another issue. That is that even when we live from that place, it can revert back. Person, how does that happen? There's two ways in getting in touch with the essence. One is through external pressure, which is the doctor telling you something. Or the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the tyrant or the Greek in the story of Hanukkah telling you you can't be Jewish. There's the outside that, gets you, that shifts you into that deeper space due to external pressure. And then there's getting there on your own with hard work. Hard work, discarding the layers of self through work, through prayer, through, through focus, etc. Different, different pathways. Getting to that place yourself. The difference is when it comes from the outside, it's not you. And even though you're hitting the essence, but since it wasn't created by you, you, you didn't initialize it, initiate it. So therefore, it can also go away, even though you, li- you were living from that space. That's why the Rebbe said in the last discourse, the last mimer that he, that he edited and distributed before his stroke in 1992, the Lubavitch Rebbe contrasted the Mesirat Nefesh, the self-sacrifice of the Jews in Russia, to, uh, sorry, those that had self-sacrifice for Judaism in Russia versus when they moved to America. He said you had many people that, would, that gave their life for Judaism in Russia. They stood up to the communists, they underground, they shiva, the whole deal. They were the strongest Jews ever. When they came to America, gone. Gone. Not only the passion, but even observance, gone. The same person that was, and there are many, many cases, that were the same person that was passionate in a place of oppression, just kind of let it go in a place of opportunity. So if we posit that in the place of oppression, they were living from their essence, so if they're living from their essence, so that seems like the magic, that seems like it. If you're living from your essence, you're set. Right? That's where real change comes from. It's not even change. You're in touch with yourself. So how can you ever lose that? You know what the answer is? If you only got there because of someone else, even though you got there, you can get out of there. You with me on this? This I've never said before in these classes. If you get to your essence because of someone else, because of something external to yourself, even though you're getting to your essence, you can get out of that space as well. It's not guaranteed to last forever. You get scared in a relationship. I'm scared. I don't want to lose the other. I'm going to recommit to love you, to do whatever, whatever it takes. It's an external pressure that's driving you there. It's an external pressure, fear of something, etc. 
The moment that dissipates, you're back to where you were. But what happened? You were living from that place of essence. You were not only in touch with it here, you were living, you could feel it. It felt different. Oh, oh, no no doubt. You still have it. The question is, can, is it sustain? Is it, we're talking about sustained change. Not only change once, but sustained change. And what I'm saying now is, the only change, the real change, guaranteed change is from the essence. But even from the essence, it's not guaranteed Consist, to, to, to be a change. Why? No, not, but why are, you always, well, why are you not always there? If you got in touch with it, we've had this discussion, right? If, 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 you're, if you got in touch with it, why aren't you always in touch with it? You know how to get there. What's the answer? Because if you got there because of someone else, because of something else, it's not you that's there. So therefore, you could theoretically, you could lose it. doesn't mean you have to lose it. You could lose it. Whereas when you do it on your own, the question is how, but when you do it on your own, you get there on your own, it's much more likely, nothing's guaranteed, you're much more likely to actually to be sustained and to stay in that essential place. But one thing is for sure, however you got there, when you are there, Everything is different. Why? Because you're in touch now. You're living from that place of essence. And here is the power of teshuva. I've said this many times, but I don't think I've said it in this... In this. We talk about it on Yom Kippur at the Learner Service and other opportunities. What is teshuva? Teshuva means to return. It's different than repentance. See, you know, the world talks about new resolutions, New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions happen in garments... Primarily. I'm going to go to the gym. It's an action. I'm going to say kinder things. I'll think better thoughts this year. Whatever it is. Or maybe I'll work on myself under the hood. The resolutions that we take happen on the, two, on the, uh, on the outer two levels, so to speak. Not in the essence. Why? Because we don't talk about change in those terms, typically, as Americans, as, as people in our society. We don't talk about life on that level. Judaism says... Where does change happen? You want to change, what does it mean? It means you have to change nothing about yourself. All you have to do is get in touch with the core, the etzem hanefesh, the core of your soul, and from there you will be living completely different. If only you get in touch with your essence, the essence of your love for yourself, self-esteem, which is really God-esteem. In touch with your connection with God, with family. When you're in touch with that essence, the true essence of who you are, everything changes naturally, organically, essentially, based on who you are and who you identify with being. As opposed to the games that we play with the resolutions that we take. And it's a game. It's like, oh, this year I'm going to see how long I can hold my head underwater. That's basically what we're saying. Let's see how long I can hold my head underwater. I'm going to do it forever. Really? Like, who you, like, like why, are we, why are we pretending? Like, what? like we know it's not going to work. But every year, whether it's January 1st or whether it's the 1st of Tishrei, we tell ourselves, hopefully not in the Jewish context, but we tell ourselves, this year it's going to be different. Really? Why? You may want it to be different on some level, but tomorrow you may want it to be exactly the same. You may strong-arm yourself into being different. I'm just doing like my half Nelson behind my back for no reason. You may strong-arm yourself, right, a little noogie action, to, to be different today. But who says you're going to have the energy to do so tomorrow? Maybe you'll be lazy tomorrow. You're like, I, don't, I can't do it anymore. It's like you're literally saying, how long am I going to hold my head underwater? And if you tell yourself it's going to be forever, all you're being is delusional. That's why in Judaism, we don't take resolutions. We do something called teshuva, which means returning to the essence of who we are. Tashuv means to return. 
Doesn't mean to take on a new resolution. Take on a new resolution, you can take on your old resolution, and you can break your new resolution. You can take on a new terrible new resolution. Well, how's that going to help? What's a resolution? The answer is, from a Jewish perspective, the answer is not taking on anything new, not changing anything outside. It's about <coughs> getting more and more in touch with the essence. The more we're in touch with the essence, the more change occurs, and the more good things happen. Not because I'm holding my head under the water, but because this is who I am. I, I take a resolution this year to, to be more loving to my spouse. To be more loving to my spouse is not going to happen consistently if I'm constantly needing to remind myself and basically hold my head underwater. It's going to happen when I'm living from a different place where my spouse is me. And where I can no more disrespect my spouse than disrespect me. And by the way, disrespecting me is not an option. Because disrespecting me is disrespecting God. Because God made me. When I live from that place, everything shifts. But it doesn't shift based on a decision that I'm making. Based on something, something new that I'm introducing. But something absolutely essential. Does this make sense? <coughs> I'm sorry for uh, not being able to speak. I want you to make sure I cover everything. <coughs> Absolutely. Repentance is, oh, I feel bad. Oh, I don't like that. Let me do something new. Let me repent. Let me, let me say sorry. It's, Baba, it's a game. It's a game that's not going to last. It's the same thing as a resolution. It's not, it's, I mean, who are we kidding? I'm not, it's better to do that than, than just to resign yourself to, to not yourself, oneself to, to negativity. But we shouldn't convince ourselves that that's actually going to change anything, like long term. What changes? Getting in touch with who we really are. By the way, I was going to say uh, another thing that I have to say is that's why psychology only speaks of the outer two dimensions. It speaks of like the behavior and then the subconscious. It doesn't speak about the essence. Because the essence can't be understood. And psychology is a science, a science of studying the mind. You can't... It's almost like we've been discussing in this, in this discourse, there are things that you can understand, and things that even if you don't understand, but you know that they exist. That's still not these, the essence. That's all the subconscious. The essence is that which is so beyond, so deep, so beyond, that's not at all logical... It's completely super-rational, not compelled even by the rational compelling the existence of the super-rational. So that's why science is, cannot come up with this concept. What, what proves it? So the, what it says in Tanya proves it. The fact that you have somebody who lived their life disconnected from their, from their Jewish, connect, from their Jewish uh, heritage, from their Jewish um, essence, if you will. But in a moment of, uh, of, of a stark decision of you know, kiss the cross or, or, or kiss the sword, and they choose to not, to not convert, to stay, to stay true to their, to their essence, to their faith, that is the greatest testament to the fact that this is something. This is a deep connection that defies logic. It's not something that can be proven from a logical place, but we see it in action. And that's mu- that speaks much louder than, than the microscope. Science has um, represented it, um, I think, in a way that makes it accessible. And that is in the sense that the, I think what we talk about, the essence, is an inner, is a rhythm, in an inner rhythm. And one of the reasons that it has always made sense to me is that when you talk about accessing that essence, that the ways that you can do that, in a sense, are through prayer, which has a rhythm, right. meditation, chanting, 
Um, Song. The runners, if you're a runner, there's a point at which you're kind of, they call it the zone. And what you're doing is you're sort of masking these external, all the noise, and you're creating sort of a very steady rhythm so that you can let go of the world and get more get in touch that. with that, But that is that internal, it's your internal metronome in a sense. It is what, interesting. The, I mean, our heartbeat, that's what our heartbeat is. There, very it's interesting. All, it's all a rhythm. I think that's... that's when, when I said about science, I meant like Freud. Freud talked about the id and not the yid. That's okay. like our famous joke. <laughs> no, no, no. Right? That's, yeah, because that's sort of the, the other way. Talks about right. But in that way... But you're saying that we are, we are getting to that... Yeah, that, but, it, but it's so... Because we, we live in... The, we all live in this world with so much noise around us, literally and figuratively. But that noise, in a way, are the, the, the rhythms and so on that are um, <coughs> masking that very simple internal rhythm, which in a sense is the, you know, what soothes the baby is that is it's the heartbeat. There's a very steady rhythm. And I think I what's interesting, yeah. the essence, I think that's the way that, that we can use a scientific notion to be able to get closer to that internal rhythm. What I like about that is that the rhythm represents like the basis, basic essence of life. Yes. Very which I think is what you're saying. Very simple and basic. I, I want to mention one other point, and then we're going to look inside a little bit for a few minutes. Um, that is that, you know, it's the, it's this essence. It's this essence, if you will, of the Jew in our context, speaking about like in the story of Hanukkah, how the Jew, the essential, when, when the Greeks, Syrian Greeks, whatever, came along and said, oh, you can't study Torah the way you want to study Torah. You have to, intellectualize everything and it can't be about God, etc. The Jew absolutely rejected that and they were moved to a space of essence of saying, I, can, I can't sell out my soul. Like, I'm not going to do that. I, I, can't, I can't let it go because that's, that's part of who I am. It's important to realize that it's, the, it's almost the, the essence of the soul getting in touch with that essence that proves the essence of God, that proves the existence of God. You with me? It's that essence, that essential connection, that proves the existence of God. Because because it's a part of God. That's what it is, and that's why perhaps the Greeks. We've been grappling with why did the Greeks care if we study Torah because it's God's Torah. This is really a question about anti-Semitism in general. What do they care? Like, what's the like? Why like, does it bother you? But it's been noted by various individuals that really there were many anti-Semites that arose in history who were not trying to destroy the Jew, they were trying to destroy God. And we can understand how, how that kind of makes sense because it's the, if the essence of the soul is one with God and you're trying to destroy that essence by making everything rational or, or by literally destroying the body, if you will, or destroying the, the, the existence of the Jew... Then in reality, it's trying to trying to get rid of God. Anyway, that's that's one connection. If it if it resonated, good. If not, not. But let's let's look a little bit inside, and we're going to conclude chapter seven because we have not concluded it. We're going to do so in the next three to five minutes. So hang on, buckle up. We're on page fifty-four. Does everyone have a copy? Kindling times. You ready? Kindling times at the bottom. You want me to go? Yeah. This is also why the lamps of Hanukkah are different from the lamps of the base Hamikdash in regard to their kindling time i.e. why the mitzvah of the Hanukkah lights begins when the sun sets. 
For it is specifically through the revelation of the level of Yehuda that transcends the Shtal Shalut of the person. I.e., getting in touch with the essence of your soul. That one can illuminate the darkness. It is not just that in the presence of this light the darkness is not concealed. The darkness itself is transformed. The two, the two dimensions there are, the first dimension is that you can have a light that blocks out the darkness. So that means I can take a resolution that says, oh, I'm going to be different. So you're not getting rid of it, you're just pushing it away. But there's nothing stopping the darkness from coming back tomorrow. Today I'll, I'll push it away. Tomorrow it'll come back. But here we're talking about a transformation of the darkness. There's no longer darkness. The darkness has turned to light. The same part of you that said yesterday, I want to eat unhealthy, when you're in touch with your essence, says, I want to eat healthy. It's not like I have to fight against the desire to eat unhealthy anymore. It's the same part of me that's like, oh, unhealthy tastes good, is good for me. That's no longer there. It's only healthy is good for me. That's the transformation we're talking about. Continue. This is also why the time of the light in the Hanukkah lights extends until the foot ceases from the market, until the feet of the Tarmadai This is, okay, let's... Quick, quick uh, explanation here. The Talmud says, when you kindle your menorah, what is the time that you have to, what is the window of opportunity to light your Hanukkah? The night of Hanukkah, right? First night of Hanukkah, you're lighting your Hanukkah. You got it in the window, it's all set. From sundown, after the sun sets, why, why? Because we're battling dark. It's all about darkness battling, battling darkness. So it's got to be after the darkness is already set. So it's after sunset. But when, when do you light it until? When's your window of opportunity? Until people are still around. Remember we said we want people to see it's all about uh, publicizing, pursuing Nisa, it's all publicizing the miracle. So if everyone's asleep, so what kind of, what kind of publicity are you doing? So you got it until the last people are still, the Tamardai, they were the wood choppers. Remember they used to ch- chop the wood and sell it in the street, sell it to people at night? Because people were cold, whoops, we ran out of wood, no problem, we deliver for you, right? That's what they were doing in the streets. So if they already went home, it's too late. If they're still roaming the streets, you're still on time to light the menorah. So it's from sunset until people leave the shuk, the marketplace. And what is that? The kalya rigla the tamadai. It's Aramaic. Until the feet of the tamadai cease. Stop. Their feet stop. What does that mean, stop? Their feet stop. It means until they stop walking through the marketplace. The tamadai are the word shoppers. You with me? Now, here he explains it Kabbalistically. A completely different interpretation. That's all the basic meaning. Here's, you want to study Talmud. The Talmud, the Gemara, the Talmud. According to Kabbalah, right here, in a spiritual sense. In a spiritual sense, Tamadai refers to those who rebel against the kingdom of heaven. Talmud is made up of the same Hebrew letters as Moradet, which means rebel. If you look at the Hebrew, Talmud... The same, literally the same Hebrew letters as Moredet. Moredet means someone who is rebelling. Moredet is a defector, a rebeller, somebody who's rebellious. So who are the Tarmadai? Not woodchoppers. The rebellious one. It's the rebellious one who's rebelling against whom? <coughs> against God. That's what the and we, who is this Tarmud? Who like whoa? Who's the rebeller? Like who are we calling out here? Who is it? It's us. We each have an inner Tamudai. We each have an inner Yetzirah, evil inclination, animal soul. We have that inner heaviness that pulls us into negative, negativity, etc. So that's the, rebell- the, the rebeller, the Tamudai, the woodchopper slash rebeller within. Continue. These Tamudai remain in the market, the realm of public domain, and peaks of separation. Let me explain. These Tamudai, these rebellious ones, are found where? In the Shuk. In the marketplace. What's the difference between whether you're in your house or the marketplace? The way Jewish law refers to it as, there's Rishut HaYachid and Rishut HaRabim. There's the domain of the one 
and the domain of the many. Your home is a private domain, private property, and the street is public property. But in the Hebrew, in the halachic, in the Jewish terminology, it's the reshut hayachid, the, the domain of the one, versus the domain of the many. What's the difference? Domain of the one spiritually refers to the domain of God. It means a person who is in private domain, and the domain of the one means that a person is, person is conscious of God. God runs the world. I, I have a direct connection with God, and that's it. I'm in, I'm in that state of connection with one. If I'm in the streets, in the domain of the many, what does it mean? There are many forces in my life that, can, that, run, the, that run the world. Rashut HaRabim means this is in control and that's in control and I'm in control and you're in control. My boss is in control and my sister-in-law is in control. Everyone's in control. God, one of many forces. That's the difference. Rashut HaYachid, the singular domain, private domain, is oneness. God, unity. The other, the other reality is separation. So the Morendet, the Talmudaya, where are they found? Where is the rebelliousness found? It's found in understanding that God is not in control, or the notion that God is not in control. But there are many forces out there. Many forces out there. That's the marketplace. Continue. And the Hanukkah lights cause the feet of the Talmudai to be kalya, which can be explained in two ways. A, the light of the Hanukkah lamp is mechala, yeah. destroys and nullifies the feet of the Talmudai. B, the light of the Hanukkah lamp causes a kilyon, a yearning for divinity, even within the feet of the Tarmudai, such that even the rebels will reach the level of kelot hanefesh, yep. an ecstatic yearning for the soul, for divinity. So the Talmud says, the kalya rigla the Tarmudai, until the feet of these rebellers are kalya. What does kalya mean? Either they're destroyed, or they are uplifted. What's the difference? One is... <coughs> I can be so strong and passionate about doing the right thing that I've like I've pushed away any negativity. I've destroyed, in a sense, I've pushed away the negativity. There's another dimension, a deeper dimension, where I haven't pushed away the negativity. I've transformed the negativity. In other words, those forces, like I said before, you can either push away darkness, destroy the darkness, or you can transform the darkness to light. Different reality. All of this is a message within ourselves. When we're in touch with the essence, with the true essence of who we are, it's not that the negative behavior, again, think about it in the context of a relationship. So, I've been neglecting my spouse. I get in touch with the essence, and I realize that, my, that, that we have this essential, like, what am I doing? So now, it's not that the negative behavior is pushed away or destroyed. It's that that can actually be transformed somehow. How would that play out? Let's use the example of eating, because that's one that I've already uh, articulated, so instead of doing it on the fly. So eating habits, negative eating habits. So eating negatively, eating things that are unhealthy, and then realizing that I need to eat healthy can happen in two ways. Number one, I'm, not, I'm no longer going to eat the unhealthy stuff, but I still haven't converted it into, into something, into the positive. Or, I can, or the same drive that pushed me to eat unhealthy is now going to have me eat healthy. Why? Because it, it's good for me, it feels good for me. Instead of battling against, when I'm living from a place of essence, the question is, what happens on the other layers? Are they still fighting? Am I just not listening to them anymore? Or have they been transformed? And it's seamless now the whole way through. The deepest dimension of what we're saying is that when you really are living from the essence, not only... Are you pushing away any other, you're just getting everything out of the way and living from that essential space, but actually you can transform everything else from the inside out to create change, real change, that from, from the deepest part of you to the most external part of you. 
Not because you made a decision, which can flip the other way, but because that's who you are, and that can't change. Can you get there by just, you know, doing something long enough? Like, you're going to be it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Although it does say that, I will tell you, it says, which means that the beginning and the end are, are essentially connected. It's like a circle. It's like the beginning of the circle is actually more connected with the end of the circle than with the mid part. So the truth is, it does say that action, action can stir the essence. Like, one way of getting in touch with the essence is actually by living that way. If you live that way, you do something, even though you're not feeling it, you're not understanding it. But it's, there's no guarantee there either that it's not going to flip back. It's, it's one way, but there's no guarantee of getting there. The easiest way to get there is external pressure. Somebody forcing you in, something dramatic happening out of your control that throws you, that thrusts you in that place. Before, and, and, and whether you liked it or not, <coughs> next thing you know is like you're really serious about life. Like you're, really, like you're in a different place. It's the easiest way to get there. It's the most painful way to get there, usually. And at the same time, it's not guaranteed that you'll stay there because it is from an external place. So that was one of the, the innovation, the, one of the new ideas that I, that I hope came out today. And then, again, this, this idea of what does it mean that you light the menorah? Oh, one second. Let me just quickly round this out. When the Talmud says the time of lighting the menorah is from, from sunset until the Tarmadai cease, the feet of the Tarmadai cease, according to Kabbalah, what does it mean? It means that when the darkness emerges, what do you do? You pull out your menorah. What is the light of the menorah? Not the light of the temple of seven lamps. It's eight. You've got to pull out the, when darkness hits, real darkness, <coughs> inner darkness. You're confused. You're, you don't, you're torn. And all of the resolutions that you took and all of the good, they're not working. It's still dark. It's real dark. What do you do? <coughs> you got to go deeper. You got to go to the essence, and light, and and from there emerge with the, with a deep light, with a truer light, with a light of eight, not of seven. Seven is a rational light. It makes sense to be light. It's not rational anymore. It's got to be essential. That's the eight. Once it's from the essence, then it will illuminate the darkness until the feet of the Tarmadai cease, until it's pushed away and it's still transformed all the forces that are inside. Does that make sense? That's the new way of understanding the Talmud. Talmud says, when do you light the menorah? From sunset until these fellows cease. What does it mean? It means exactly that. You light it when it's dark. You, you summon that, that essence. And, and that produces light that can transform every part of who you are and bring about uh, a, a transformation of self from the inside out. So that's why you don't light them before sunset. There's no need for it. There's no need to. That's the temple they lived before. The temple, seven, the temple was, there was no severe darkness, times of the temple. It was, all is good, it's all, it's all happy, it's all fine. <coughs> so you don't need to summon that energy. If all is going well, if, if you have a great relationship, so then you don't need to fall in the essence. Pleasure. You don't always need to pull, pull something so much deeper from within. It's only when you're, you're faced with a severe challenge and you realize it's not working, you've got to go inside a little bit deeper. How do you get there? That's a discussion. But that's why, yeah, you like the Hanukkah menorah. You, like the, you only pull out the eight when it's dark. And the purpose is to get from darkness to light. And what, how is that represented? By ending the foot traffic of the Tarmadoy, the Moredet. No more rebelliousness within. In other words, there's no more opposition there's no, more, there's no more challenge. And it's not that I'm beating down the opposition. 
I, it's like I'm taking a good resolution to counteract the, the negative stuff that I'm doing, but I can flip back the other way. It's not flipping back the other way. It's like a transformation that's happening. That's the idea. Next week, we're going to talk about the bulls of Sukkot and the connection of the bulls of Sukkot to the Hanukkah lamps. We'll speak about how to influence others. We'll continue the discussion of how to influence ourselves and how to make new friends outside of ourselves, how to influence others. So what was Carnegie's book? How to make friends and influence people? That's kind of sort of, but not, not at all what we're going to talk about <laughs> next week. How to influence yourself and kind of sort of not, and influence others. Today made sense? Here's what I would like to do. We have a new, uh, okay, let me get off my